2: To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here's our Bible teacher,
0: Tom Cantor. For Chaim, there's one thing that he never addressed in his book, and it's two words. And for Chaim, those two words represent the Himalayas, that Chaim never came, he came to the base camp in Tibet of the Himalayas, but he never crossed the Himalayas, because he never embraced those two words as a Christian. Chaim never made it over the Himalayas. And you know what those two words are? They're very simple, I say them all the time. Jehovah Jesus. Those are the two words. Jehovah Jesus. Jehovah is Jesus. See, Chaim has made every argument possible to fight against Jesus, and it's a stunning work, and it stands as the most comprehensive work that I've ever seen against the Lord Jesus Christ. There's just one problem. There's no address of Jehovah Jesus. There's no address of Jesus is Jehovah. Chaim argues in his book, he keeps saying, this was done before Jesus. This was done before Jesus. Just one problem. Nothing's done before Jehovah Jesus. Because John 1:1 1, 1 says in the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was the word. That's Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was Jehovah. In the beginning was Jehovah Jesus. And the problem for the lost is that if they don't repent is that there's a problem for the lost that the hospice cannot solve. There's a problem for the lost that the hospice coming cannot solve. There's a problem for the loss that Ativan for anxiety can't solve. There's a problem for the loss that morphine and the respiratory suppression that it induces can't solve. There's a problem for the loss that California SB-128 end of life law, which will go into effect on June 9th, can't solve. There's one problem for the loss that a peaceful transition from a deep sleep into death cannot solve. And that problem is what happens to the loss after that sleep. Because that problem is described in Daniel 12 too. Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And the problem for the lost is called in Daniel twelve two, sleep in the dust of the earth and awake. And to awake for the lost is to cry out for death. Where's death? And Revelation 9.6 describes this. It says, and in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it. And they shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. Death is gonna run away from them. And the problem for the lost is to cry out for death and to see death just run away. And the problem for the lost is to cry out for morphine and to see morphine run away and and to cry out for California's SB 128 end of life law and to see for assisted suicide. And that will run away. Because there is no resorting to SB 128, end-of-life law. For the lost, there is simply Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. Then it will be for the lost to stand before Jehovah Jesus as the ultimate judge. And there's nothing that any lost person can do to avoid standing before Jehovah Jesus to be judged. When the lost seek for death, to avoid the judgment, death's going to run away. When they seek for morphine, morphine's gonna run away. When they seek for the end-of-life law, it's gonna run away. Because no lost person can escape standing before Jehovah Jesus. It will be so shocking for the lost to see Jesus, Jehovah's Jesus. As the judge, it will leave them in a state of dhamma. That's destruction. Destruction from having the tongue that's not able to speak. The shock. From seeing Jehovah Jesus as God the judge will make the tongue not able to say, Jesus, did you read my book? Did you read my book detailing how you cannot be Jehovah? The one who said in Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed. My people are dama. They're destroyed with a tongue that can't speak. That's the one in Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. That's the one in Matthew 5, 1. Same one, seeing the multitudes. He's now seeing his people who are being destroyed for lack of knowledge. That's the pain he had inside in Matthew 5, 1 from seeing the multitudes, the pain of seeing his people being destroyed for lack of knowledge. So what does he do? What does Jehovah Jesus do when he sees the multitude? He feels this indescribable pain of seeing Hosea 4, 6, his people destroyed for lack of knowledge. He does what you would expect in verse 2. He opened his mouth and taught them. He gave them knowledge. He moves to take away the reason for the destruction of his people, the lack of knowledge. He opens his mouth. He gives them the knowledge they're lacking and their knowledge they're lacking is not just interesting food for thought. It's vital knowledge. It's the knowledge that makes a difference between life and death. What he teaches here on the Sermon on the Mount is the knowledge that will give his people the escape they need from a Dhamma tongue, a Dhamma ruin of being destroyed after a shocking judgment the tongue cannot speak in defense. It's going into an eternal state of hell. Seeing the multitudes, Jehovah Jesus immediately gets himself situated on the mountainside, gets his disciples around him. And now he says, okay, here's the first vital knowledge that you need. And this is verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God the knowledge that's foundational, the knowledge that happened to Naomi is very important to see in these poor in spirit, and it's very important to see in spirit. This is not a financial poverty. There's nothing wonderful about being financially poor. But this is a special poverty being called poor in spirit. And the person, he could be financially poor and not be poor in spirit. A person could be financially wealthy and be poor in spirit. And Naomi had come to a point where she was poor in spirit. And the best way to understand this, what does it mean to be poor in spirit, is to see the opposite of it, rich in spirit, which is what we see in Revelation 3. In Revelation 3, 17, is the opposite of being poor in spirit because it says, because thou sayest, I am rich, increased with goods, have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. The shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eyesal that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. What we see with Naomi at this point, the change, she's not saying these words, She's not saying that she has need of nothing. God, when she said, I went away full and I came back empty, that was gracious of God. God graciously reduced Naomi down to a condition, and Naomi submitted to her personal reduction by God, and now she's saying that she had one need, and her one need was God. When a person says that, they're poor in spirit. Naomi was poor in spirit, because being poor in spirit, Naomi was saying, I'm poor, and I need God to make me rich with riches that are more than material wealth. Being poor in spirit, Naomi was saying, I'm blind, and I need God to guide me. Being poor in spirit, Naomi was saying, I need everything from God. Naomi had been stripped of the conceit. The conceit, what is conceit? Conceit is a self-inflicted Wound of deception in thinking that we are something when we're nothing. But Naomi's bad spirit and what she said way back in chapter one, it was so terrible that she knew very strongly in herself that she came to know that she was wretched. When she saw that, she could go back. I mean, we read it. So, Naomi, you were bad. But she, she was in her mind. And being poor in spirit, she was saying, Boy, I'm wretched inside. You know, to say those things about God, that he did all those things to me, I need God to deliver me from myself. And when Naomi said about her, so she could see it about herself, She's said exactly, she's on the same page as Paul in Romans seven eighteen. Paul in Romans seven eighteen, for he says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but to how to perform, it. that which is good, I know not. That's the key to being poor in spirit. It's a recognition of how terrible we are on the inside. And no one is poor in spirit unless they see what Paul saw in Romans seven eighteen. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. But it's possible for a person to think that he's really something when reality is not. And the Bible calls this self-deception in Galatians 6, 3. Galatians 6, 3. For if a man thinketh himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Self-deception, like I said, is a self-inflicted wound of the spirit. It's possible to ignore our wretched condition and our need of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it takes an effort to resist the self-deception of thinking we're great when we're not. To be poor in spirit takes an effort to resist that. And this effort to resist the proud deception, it really reminds us of, that we've got to keep remembering who we really are and what we are in and of ourselves. You know, I'm thinking about when I was 15 years old, and uh, I was such a wonderful son that they had to get me far away from the family as possible, so they sent me to Switzerland for high school. And I attended my first school, which I didn't really graduate from. I was kicked out. But anyways, that's a different story. But when I was 15, the first school I went to was called Monte Rosa Boarding School. It was in Montreux, Switzerland, which was right at the end of the Lake Geneva. And uh, the really great part about that school was that it was just a short walk from one of the most fabulous castles in Europe called Chateau de Chillon. Chateau de Chillon was just this very impressive castle right on the edge of the lake, tall castle, and we could walk there. It wasn't really far. And as students, we all got the student museum cards so we could go in for free anytime. That was great. So whenever we had any free time, we didn't go into the city. We went to the castle. And it was right there on this road, very important road that connected France with Italy, very, very key road that went to the St. Bernard Pass in the Alps, so that went into Italy. So that, that road was very important back in the days of the Romans, uh, guarded that road viciously, and so did Napoleon, because blocking that road, you could keep the enemies from entering into Italy. So it was an area that was just full of history of a lot of battles that took place on that road, and the castle was strategic, and the castle is where the knights lived, and their horses were kept, and, and like I say, we just loved the students to go to this tall, multi-story castle, and, you know, and it was a museum. We'd read all about the battles and the knights and the lords there, and, and they had all the armor in there and everything in the castle. It just stands there. It was built over 1,000 years ago in the year 1005. And what was so interesting about that castle was that the upper floors had these large stately bedrooms with windows that looked out over Lake Geneva or to France on the other side and to the Alps. And it had these large dining rooms and party halls and and they were all filled with the knight's armors and everything and tapestries on the wall. And then on the ground level, that was where the horses were kept and the armor for the horses. But what was really interesting was that there was a level that was actually below the ground level, and that was the dungeon. And that was the dungeon where the prison was actually down there. It was below the water level. And the dungeon, it was just a terrible place. I mean, you're down there, and you hear this continual lapping of the waves against the stone, and there was cold mist, you know, in there. And the coldness just seemed to penetrate This dungeon, it didn't have any heat, the air was stale, it was damp, it was moldy, there was no system to remove human excrement. The dungeon just, it was a horrible place. And in the dungeon were these seven stone pillars that held the castle up, and on each one of these pillars, they had these iron rings in the columns there, and they were used to chain the prisoners to the columns, who would then slowly die in the dungeon. And it was such a terrible place. And it was so astounding to go from the top floors with all the opulence and the luxurious living and the beauty, and in the same building downstairs is this terrible dungeon. I mean, the castle, it was so interesting for us as students. It's a place where your imagination just runs wild. You see the armor, you imagine battles and party halls and all, and then you go down the dungeon and all, oh, and your imagination, you know, the prisoners who were captured and not killed and brought to the dungeon to languish away it was just a really astounding place. But there was one of the stone columns that was very special there because that's the column where Lord Byron, the famous English poet, carved his name. Carved his name in the column. And, and so you go see that. And so, he, and why did he do that? He's the one who wrote the famous poem, Prisoner of Shion. And on that column where he carved his name in the iron ring there, that was the same iron ring that Lord Byron chained himself to so he could feel what it meant to be a prisoner of Shion day and night. And having chained himself to that column, it inspired him to write lines like, There are seven pillars of gothic mold in Shion's dungeons deep and old. There are seven columns, nasty and gray, dim with a dull imprisoned ray, a sunbeam which has lost its way. And in each pillar there is a ring, and in each ring there is a chain. That iron is a cankering thing. For in these limbs its teeth remain with marks that will not wear away till I have done with this new day, which now is painful to these eyes which have not seen the sun arise. Oh, how did he get that? Those words came to him after he chained himself to that column to feel the experience of being chained as a prisoner in the dungeon there. And he walked the same tracks that had worn into the stone from the prisoners who paced in anguish as they slowly died in the column that they were chained to. See, Lord Byron made himself aware of that dungeon to know what it was like to be a prisoner in Shion. And it was not good enough for Lord Byron just to go down there and know it was there and take a little short visit. He knew that he had to become chained to a column there before he had the passion to write Prisoner of Shion. And that dungeon was just an awful place, and 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 and... and 10 minutes was enough for me to get out of there, but spending day and night there. But that, what was so amazing was that it was the same building that the lords and the knights lived above in such luxury. I mean, having gone from the upper floors there, you know, standing in the judging, you say, I wonder if any of those lords ever ever walked downstairs to this terrible lower dungeon of death and suffering. I wonder how many of them walked down there to make themselves aware of what was a part of their house that they were living in. I mean, if a person lived in the Chateau Chillon on the upper floors there and never went down to the bottom of the dungeon there, he'd never be aware that he was living on top of a place of death, a terrible place. He could actually deceive himself into thinking that there is no dungeon prison that I'm living in. He could keep himself from knowing right there in his own castle underneath where he lived that in the same building there were prisoners who were, hated him and who wanted to kill him if they had a chance to but he can keep himself from knowing that if he never went downstairs. And he could deceive himself into thinking that there is no dungeon, and our body is like the chateau de Shion. Our body is like the castle. In reality, this is what Paul is referring to when he says, I know that in me dwelleth no good thing that is in my flesh. We have in our body a lower dungeon of death and that's the lower dungeon of our own sinfulness, and just as the dungeon of Shion is a part of the castle, our sinful flesh is part of our body. But you know, the question, the question is, do we ever take time to walk downstairs? Do we ever get to, take time to, to become aware again of how sinful we are? What happened to Naomi in chapter one was that she saw her own bitterness against God and just how sinful she was. And when that happened to Naomi, She was taken down to the dungeon of her own corrupt heart, and she was shown what a destitute, miserable sinner she was. And Naomi never forgot that, and that's what made Naomi poor in spirit. And whenever Naomi would remember that, which she did in chapter 1, Naomi would just be walking down to the dungeon of her own life, and she would become, again, poor in spirit. That's what needs to happen to us as believers. We need to be like Naomi and remember our own sinfulness. And that's how we walk down to the dungeon of our own corrupt heart. Because there's always the temptation for us to say, I'm not that bad. I'm really not bad. As a matter of fact, I'm really something. In reality, we're nothing. And in the past, criminals, they had to wear this board around their neck, you know, that said what they did and what they, therefore what they are. Boy, if we had to wear a sign like that, that'd be horrible. But we see many examples in the scriptures of those who did not deceive themselves into thinking they are something when they're nothing. Job. Job did not stay in the upper floors of his life castle. He walked down, and he visited the lower dungeon of his own life when he said in Job 42.5, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. Now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job 40, verse four. Job said, behold, I am vile. And so we see Abraham. Abraham didn't stay only in the upper chambers of his life castle. He walked down to the lower house, and it says in Genesis 18, 27, Abraham answered and said, behold, now I've taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Charles Wesley, he didn't stay only on the upper floors. He took a walk down in his own life, the lower part there, and that's how he was able to write one of the stanzas in his hymn, Jesus, lover of my soul, just and holy is thy name, I am all unrighteousness, false and full of sin. I am. Isaiah, he didn't say only in the upper floors. He took a walk down lower dungeon when he wrote in Isaiah 6, verse 5, then said I, woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king. David, oh, David, what can we say about David? He, he had quite a look. And he wrote in Psalm 51, Psalm 51, verse three, "'For I acknowledge my transgressions, "'my sin is ever before me. "'Against thee and thee only have I sinned "'and done this evil in thy sight, "'that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest. "'Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, "'and in sin did my mother conceive me.'" Peter, he didn't stay upstairs, he went downstairs also. In Luke 5, 8, Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' feet, and he said, "'Depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord.'" John Newton, amazing grace, amazing grace. How sweet the sound to save a wretch like me. What this means is that when these words come to us, like I abhor myself, I am vile, I'm dust and ashes, on all unrighteousness, false and sin, I'm undone, a man of unclean lips, shape and iniquity, a sinful man. That's the road. That's the road for us to be poor in spirit. That's the first beatitude. Because without being poor in spirit, there is no blessing. And whenever a person walks down to visit the lower dungeon of his life and, and sees himself or really is sinful, then he becomes poor in spirit. And Naomi did that. And the Greek word for poor in Matthew 5.3, it means being bent over or crouched or cowering. So the word poor describes what happened to Naomi. When a person is beat down to their knees, she becomes poor in spirit. As you know, I traveled to Japan and used to go to Japan sometimes twice a year since 1982, and rice, that's the major crop. Everything is rice. The whole country turns around rice. Most important crop in Japan it's everywhere. And rice plants, they grow straight up, and then as the kernel in the rice gets uh, heavy, the heavy kernel at the end of the stalk, and as it gets ready to, to reap, the stalk bends more and more and more and more. And the weight of the rice, the weight of the rice kernel there, it makes the stalk just bend over. And it has always pointed out to me how the rice plant teaches us what true greatness is. Like the rice, the greater the person, the more the person will bend in tsutsumashi, in humility, will bend. See, Paul knew this. That's poor in spirit. Paul knew this being poor in spirit when he wrote in Romans 7, 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death?